Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are with us and your spirit is with us, that you uh, have promised that, that your word doesn't return void, that thinking about and discussing these things, Lord, is, is anything but a, a mere uh, exercise in theology and doctrine and, and being right. But Lord, if we let these things permeate who we are, this is spiritual formation for us. Being reminded of who you are reminds us of who we were made to be. And, and Lord, uh, being reminded of what your son Jesus did for us uh, and how you redeemed us, uh, it, it gives us the, the strength and the desire uh, more and more by degrees to, to live lives that honor you and glorify you. Lord, we pray that that would be uh, the effect these things have on us this week. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I asked you a question last week that nobody meditated upon because it was silly, but I'm going to ask it again anyway. Is sanctification more like ordering up on the telephone the Bowflex, which is the home gym situation from the 80s where you get really ripped and you get that weird 80s like concavity up at the top of your, your uh, abs? Um, you know, this kind of, I've got the sanctification, now I'm doing all of this, and I'm getting more and more spiritually muscular? Or is it more like the uh, 1970s fad of the electrodes that you hook up to the muscles that you want to exercise, turn it to a certain uh, intensity, and then it just contracts your muscles for you by, like, electrical impulses? And uh, to quote the guy who played Bruce Lee, Five minutes is like doing 500 push-ups. So, in other words, are you passive or are you active? I don't know, because I think it's a little both. Maybe it's a trick question. I, I wouldn't put that past me. <laughs> Build your case. Well, well, I think that I think that sanctification is synergistic. So, so I think that I think that God will actually bring. The, the progress um, uh, through the spirit, but I think that, uh, but I think that it takes human effort and and, and human will to do it. I think you actually have to want to do it. You can't just expect God to perfect you. I think there has to be some fight. I think there has to be some want to kill the sin to mortify the flesh. Of course, the the want comes from Him. Yes. The will comes from Him. Uh, Sam read for us that passage last week. Uh, is he's working in us to will and to God is giving us the desire. And God is God is working in us even as we're working. So when when uh, we we use the term synergistic, we mean uh, a combined effort between more than one. In fact, that's what synergy. When you hear synergy, what is that? Uh, soon means with in Greek. Ergon means work work with. So this isn't a solo effort. It's a team project. And like any team project, right, you've got the slackers and you've got the people who are carrying the weight of it. So, for example, my, my wife to this day hates any kind of team effort because all throughout school, she's not here so I'll talk about her, all throughout school she was always the one who cared the most, did the most, and there was always some schlub who wasn't, you know, destined to finish college in two and a half years who was just riding the coattails and got the grade. But in sanctification... We know we're not the one who's going to propel us to the A. We know that in this team. But we're, we're called to not be the one who's just kind of laying. You know, have you seen Inside Out? 
Come on, none of you have seen Inside Out. It's charming. It's a beautiful program. Okay. It is a cartoon. Yes, it is absolutely a cartoon. Um, Sadness will just lay down and put her foot up, indicating, drag me where you want me to go. Uh, And that, I think, is often what many people in in their Christian faith do. Like, all right, God, fine. You want me to be holy? (sighs) Go ahead and drag me there. And that is not the way sanctification is described. In fact, Alex calling it a fight is certainly more in keeping with the biblical imagery. That if you're in a fight, even if it's two on two, you know, you've got a guy next to you. If you just go, all right, let's win this fight, it's not going to go well for you, right? Um, you, you know, even though when uh, the, the Cartwrights get into a fight with some other people, you know Haas is going to be knocking out three times more guys than, the, than, than little Joe. Little Joe's still swinging. He's still fighting because he still cares. Uh, and so this is, for us, more of a Bowflex effort, I think. But you didn't buy it. You didn't, you didn't pay for it. It was shipped to you. This is really a semi-sacrilegious uh, analogy. It was shipped to you, postage paid by God. Here you go. This is what you, and he's coming over. He's your, your uh, personal trainer. And he's helping you out. He, he's with you all the time. Apart from him, what can we possibly do? The, the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith says this in uh, 14.1, the grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word by which also and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer it is increased and strengthened. So what we want is as we are sanctified, our our faith to be increased for it to be strengthened. And it is called a war. Somebody flip to... uh, Romans 7. I'm going to look at a couple verses in Romans 7. Someone read for me 7.18 once you get there. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. Right, and that it begins a very famous passage in which Paul describes uh, his life and what I want to do, I don't do. The good that I want to do, I don't do. The, the evil that I don't want to do, I'm doing it. And he's very frustrated with himself. Now, there are those who have uh, looked at this passage and said, clearly, he's talking about his life before he came to faith. Because this can't describe the victorious life of a Christian. Certainly not St. Paul. Uh, no. Of course, this is the life of a Christian. And I would suggest that those who look at this and say that doesn't sound like the struggle of a Christian, it's not because they're very holy and successful in their sanctification. Rather, it's because they're very insensitive to the presence of sin in their lives and, and very uh, complacent with, with where they sit. Uh, if they were able, uh, through the illumination of the Spirit, to see how much further they have to go, they probably would have one of these, oh, wretched man that I am moments and suddenly uh, relate to this passage. Um, skip down to 23. You know what? Let's read that whole thing, actually. Someone read um, from 18 all the way down to 23. That gives you the, the thrust of it. Try one. For I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. 
For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not, what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bring me into captivity uh, to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So there's a war going on between the, not the body and the soul in some Gnostic way, but be, between the flesh, the sin nature, and the spirit. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. So he wills to do these things. I'm, I'm torn on uh, that translation. Uh, I want to call up the head of the committee and say, let me, let me teach you a new word, want. Um, just because even though to, to keep on saying will to do emphasizes it's my will, and I think that's good when people want to say free will is the solution to the problem. Paul's over here going, no, free will is actually the problem. But will often means, you know, I will go to the store, and it gets confusing. But what I want to do, I'm not doing it. I want it. it the will is there. How to do it, not so clear. And at the end of the day, I'm going, wretched man that I am, why do I keep dropping the ball? This is a war. Now, much of the New Testament's about this, right? In Ephesians, we have the armor of God, right? Put on the armor of God. This is an actual war. This is not a cold war. And I think often we approach it like the Cold War, right? I'm, there was the, the arms race. I remember this, uh, being told there's an arms race and thinking really strange mental pictures as a child. Um, but uh, the idea of just stockpiling more and more and more and more, right? In, in my circles, I think this is kind of how we often approach sanctification. Learn more, learn more, read more books. Uh, become headier and headier and understand things and, and learn the Greek and now I've got all these missiles. All right, are you ever going to end the war? You ever actually going to get into the fray and fight and, and destroy the enemy, which is the sin nature, start, start an actual attack? During the Cold War, we were all praying there would be no attack because of mutually assured destruction. In this war, it's only the enemy who is assured destruction and we're assured victory, ultimately. So we want to get the armor on, get into the fight, and recognize that this is a synergistic thing. This is us working with the Holy Spirit. Or the Holy Spirit working with... It's, it's like, I mean, when, when I would let Calvin help me when he was really little, right? Here, you can, you can hammer this nail in. It's going to look like garbage, but it's good for him, for him to help. Right? It helps teach him stuff. And it's good for our relationship, for us to have done it together. I could have probably done it better. I definitely could have done it quicker. But now we've done it together. Same thing here. God could just switch right to glorification. Boom, there, now. But it's good for our relationship with him. And it's good for us to see the progress and to walk toward him and, and, and following him to get a little bit holier one day at a time. This is how he's ordained this stuff to happen. And remember that in this battle, you will win. This is what I'm preaching on this morning, and it fits so perfectly with <clears throat> what we're, uh, we've been talking about in these past uh, couple weeks here with sanctification. 
the the effects of sanctification in your lives are as far-reaching as the sinful effects, the catastrophic effects of the first Adam's sin. So we talk about total depravity in the, the Baptist tradition, the particular Baptist tradition. Total depravity does not mean everyone is as bad as they get. Everyone's like basically Hitler. And given the opportunity, everyone would slaughter en masse. No. Total depravity means everyone is affected by the fall in every part of their self. There's no part of you that's not. Even, even your like desire to give money to a charity, still tainted by sin. You want to do it in a way where people will see you, or if you do it in a way where people won't see you, you do it for the little kind of self-righteous buzz of, look how good I am. You know that's true. Every part of you is tainted by sin, and so every part of us must be sanctified. And so that is the, the scope of the war. Um, 2 Corinthians 7.1. Let me see if I, how quickly I can flip to some of these. Um, someone else looked to 1 Thessalonians 5. Here's 2 Corinthians 7. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. And it begins with, therefore, and I haven't asked this question in a while, but what's the therefore, therefore, that points us back, right? So whenever we see that, therefore, do this, remember, it's Christ did this, therefore, we respond in, in this way. This is not how we gain our salvation. This is what we do in response to our salvation. So how about somebody, 2 Thessalonians 5, or I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Somebody have that for us? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to notice that both of those passages talk about a complete sanctification, right? Everything that will contaminate body and soul, the whole self, but one of them says, you do it, purify yourself, and one of them says, may God do it. Again, we've got they're not contradictory, they're complementary. These two things are happening simultaneously. It's okay, you have a baby, go ahead and yawn, man. I, if you're not, if, I worry you're having a stroke. If, I'm, if you're like. Oh, that's right, she wakes up for the baby. You don't do that. Uh, so th this is, again, um, a war that we're fighting with our father, but it's also, two-pronged if we want to get into the kind of uh, dorky theological categories uh, category. And we can divide up the sanctification between habitual sanctification. And if you're taking notes, here's where you jot this down in your white three-ring binder. Habitual sanctification and actual sanctification. This is not something that you will ever think about again. Uh, but write it down now so that you can really lay it to rest. Uh, Ephesians 4, 17, somebody flip over there, describing habitual sanctification. Let's hear that one, 17 through 24. So, somebody, hey, Sean, you got that? Richard, is he just drawing pictures of like Rambo knives again? 17 through 24? Yeah. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, 
and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensual sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's a description of the habitual sanctification, which is a renovation of our nature. The old self, the old desire being put off, the new being put on, uh, the awareness that we are called to go the 180 degree opposite direction from the Gentiles or the heathen who live by every uh, kind of passion and desire. In fact, uh, yesterday we went to the uh, Renaissance Fair and there was a really cool fire show. And at the end, the moral of the story was, live by your passions. And I was like, no, don't do that. Um, unless your passion is for Christ. Uh, that sounds like a recipe for uh, absolute uh, depression and destruction and sadness, etc. Emptiness. Uh, so habitual sanctification, the renovation of our nature, leads into what we call actual sanctification, which is the renovation of our lives, our very lives. So again, it's the internal manifesting itself in the external. So it's like justification begins in, in God's decree about us, and there is a, it's not a legal fiction, there's a truth that permeates us and begins changing us from the inside out. So sanctification begins in the heart, in the desires, not externally with what we do and don't do. Not with this great self-discipline where, man, I still want to punch everyone in the mouth, but hey, I don't. Right? So it's, it's an inside-out kind of thing, and I know you guys haven't seen inside-out because I asked a second ago, but this is, this is different. Inside-out. Uh, how about Romans 6, 4 to 6? Anybody near the neighborhood of that still? If not, I will just read it. We were, therefore, buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too live a holy life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So here then is the description. In fact, it takes you from the internal to the external there. From the renovation, the doing away with the old nature, the old self. Uh, and that doesn't happen all at once. When you, I mean, hypothetically, if you kill someone and you have to do away with the body, that's one and done, right? You go and you find somewhere where they're pouring concrete for one of these new developments in East Lansing, hypothetically, and you just dump them in and then they get covered over. No one thinks about it again. But in dealing with the old Nate, the old Sean, the old Sam, the old Adam in me, we, we got to kill them a lot. It's like, it's like the Walking Dead. They keep coming back. We got to keep doing away with them, keep burying them, keep putting them, and that's the battle. Uh, and so it, 
as we become more and more like Christ inside, it's not that it gets easier and easier and easier. Certain sins become easier, but then you discover new ones all the time. But it becomes more and more our nature, not even second nature, actual nature, first nature, primary nature, that we fight sin, that we mortify the flesh. And there's two sides to this as well. We talk a lot about mortifying the flesh, I think because that's where a lot of people fail, to not put to death the old self, the deeds of the old self, to still be amused by and motivated by the same things as before. But putting to death isn't what Jesus came ultimately to accomplish, right? He didn't just come and say, I'm, I'm like a death god, here I come. And No, he came to give us new life. Right? So the old has to be done away with to make way for the new. You would put off the old like clothes to put on the new. You don't put the new clean clothes on over the gross muddy clothes. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, asceticism and lots of uh, false religious impulses are content to just put off the old. Or even empty the mind completely. Then you're not thinking anything wicked. Uh, empty the life completely. You know, Diogenes, uh, these, these kind of mystery cults that were around when Paul was doing his teaching, they would say, you don't need anything, right? In fact, Diogenes, the story is, he got rid of everything except like a loincloth and a cup because he could then drink water and he'd just eat what people gave him or something that he killed. And then one day he saw somebody drinking like this with their hands and he was like, don't need the cup anymore. Um, He's a litter bug. He just threw it. I don't know. And, and so there are certainly impulses for doing away with all the bad, right, that don't lead to salvation. A lot of Eastern religion, a lot of, a lot of uh, what passes as spirituality today is about kind of purging yourself of the bad, detoxing of the bad. But if you just do that, remember what Jesus taught. If you cast out the one devil, but you're still empty, nothing else has taken its place, he's like, hey, guys, Check it out. That place I used to live has gotten a makeover and it's really nice and it's you know, vacant, unoccupied. Come on with me. And the, the situation, the state of the man is worse than when he started. So you have to put off the old and then put on the new. So we talk about mortification of the flesh. And if you haven't read it, you as Baptists especially are honor bound to read John Owen's On the Mortification of the Flesh. Literally, other than the Bible, the best thing I've read about how to be a Christian. Uh, and then there is the vivification, V-I-V-I-fication, meaning the bringing to life, the mortification of the flesh, and the vivification of the believer. So there's the death of the old, but there has to be the new life more and more shining through. And I think in our world today, in the church today, it's overlooked that that evangelicals, they see justification being declared righteous, along with just enough life change, quote unquote, to convince them that their faith is real. And that's good enough. That, that will do the trick. I am indeed justified. Look, I go to church. I don't curse as much. Uh, you know, a few, just a few things, token things, and that will do the trick. But in Ephesians 1.4, we see that sanctification is the end and design of our election. That if we don't get there, we haven't gotten, I mean, author and finisher of our faith, you haven't finished, you haven't gotten where we're going. You've started the race, and, and who starts a race? Who starts building a tower without counting the cost? 
right? Who, this, is, this is foolishness, and it doesn't do us any good. So vivification of the believer. Uh, ask yourself, not just am I tearing down the old Tower of Babel, but am I building up the temple of God? Am I, am I putting to death the old and bringing the life, the new, and, and, and helping the Holy Spirit in the, the flourishing of that new man? Uh, am I taking off the old clothes, putting on the new? Whatever the case, uh, don't be content uh, to hit just enough sanctification, but also don't be content in your sanctification to just make it a search and destroy mission. You've got to spend time in the Word asking God to, to bring the sanctification into a positive, lived experience where you are now in the presence of your coworkers and family and everyone actually showing them Jesus and, and actually becoming more and more like Jesus. It's easy, is it, or maybe just for me, to get stuck in kind of a Cold War right? Like a Crimea situation or wherever where you're like, all right, you've, you've got this much, but we're going to stop you. And I'm kind of where I'm content. And I look from the outside like I'm holy. So stay off my turf. I stay off yours. Rather than really bringing the, the fight to the enemy. I think about uh, uh, Jaboth Gilead. You guys thinking, no, are you tracking with me? You remember that, that uh, the Amorites had, had conquered Jaboth Gilead and it was uh, two kings, both had, uh, of Israel and of Judah, both had sort of some claim to it, um, if only because of the ancestral connection to this being the promised land. And it's not until the king of Israel comes down to Ahab and says, should we team up and go take that back? Uh, and they were, they were going to just leave it, just leave it to the enemy because it's easier. Cede that to the enemy because it's easier. Uh, or... I don't know, there's probably more current illustrations, but uh, what, nobody else runs into this in their lives, or are you guys just really... Is, is that it's, it's tiring, because it's continual. I, I'm under attack all the time, and I fight a battle, and with the help of God, I win it, and then I see another battle right there. There's, there's, oh, here's another enemy coming at me. It's perfection is hard. And it, well, it's not hard as possible. Um, and so I'll, when I finally, uh, I'll, I'll pick an enemy to attack. And because I, I know there's things in my life that I'm having struggles with. And uh, with prayer and the help of God, I'll overcome this one. And then something comes up that I didn't even realize was a sin. Mm -hmm. And oh, <laughs> well, wow, I was really in the wrong spot on this one, and now I gotta work on this one, and it's just never ending, and sometimes it's um, impossible. So then I've gotta stop and take a break and enjoy um, justification for a while. <laughs> That's an interesting concept. Taking a break from sanctification to enjoy justification. Maybe if you said not focus on the mortification and okay. instead to think on the... But, but what you're describing is exactly how it's supposed to work. That, that as you become holier, things that didn't bother less holy Sean a year ago now do. And the Spirit is doing this it, it, by degrees, uh, shining the light of, of God's truth into your life. And, and for it to be, I wonder if maybe if it feels tiring... Either you're starting to feel like it's you doing it alone, 
right? Take heed, anyone who thinks he stand, lest he fall. Mm -hmm. Or maybe just the focus is so much on breaking down the rocks that, yeah, to stop and kind of say, God, just build where I'm sitting right now. Help me to build up and, and, and... Well, in some things, I haven't been successful with. So that's frustrating, too. I didn't want to bring it up, but yeah, I've seen that, too. So... Uh, so that's that's really frustrating. I think that's exactly what Paul is doing. Like I mean, like, I mean, like yeah. when you finish reading seven and you get into eight, the big reminder for him at the end of his struggle is that right there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's like, like he does come back to the point of of his you know finished justification in Jesus. He knows now that yes, he struggles against these sins, and yes, he isn't brought you know he. He isn't perfect, but Jesus has paid the price, and he can kind of go back to that point of resetting. That, yeah, and then like obviously anyone who reads Romans seven sees that he's a tired, sinful man, and he brings himself to that point. I'm gonna guess this is a continuing conversation that he has with himself again and again and again. That oh, what a wretched, sinful man I am. Where am I gonna find my peace? Where am I gonna find an answer? can bring yourself back to that. I think justification you're saying can you can bring yourself back to that moment of enjoyment of, oh, but Jesus has paid my price. Yeah, the next the next verse, praise be to God. Yeah, so so that finding the end of yourself is good, right? Because it forces you then to find rest in, in, in Him. Absolutely. I almost want to just stop here because my text this morning is Romans 8. Uh, but no, no, it would be a perfect lead-in. If we go any further, it'll sabotage. I'm just kidding. Just you have to Yeah, I had a thought because uh, on Friday, someone mentioned to me this idea that um, also, uh, you know, Lucifer is going to attack you. And maybe sanctification is related to that. I don't know. Maybe you'd be tired because, um, yeah, sometimes we fight against ourselves and our sin nature. But also sometimes the forces of the devil are actually attacking us as individuals. And those are, you know, more, maybe they're stronger in some ways. And we have uh, three enemies, right? Really, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, and the, the enemy likes to use the, the world and the flesh. You know? so, so, but ultimately, St. James tells us, if anyone falls into sin, he's enticed and dragged away by, not the devil, not the devil made me do it, but enticed and dragged away by his own shameful lusts. So even when we fall to a temptation, if it's an external temptation, uh, supernatural temptation, Ultimately, if we fold, we've given away to something internal. We've given, we've given in to the old self because we've bought into a lie. Um, but yeah, I think this, that is something to be aware of. And, and so to pray for strength in those moments, keeping in mind that this might not just be me falling into an old habit. This might be an actual spiritual attack. That's, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. There's, I mean, this is basically the Christian struggle, the Christian life here, where once you're saved, uh, I mean, once you're justified, rather, and you're now being sanctified, uh, there's, it's good to think about justification. It's good to talk about it. It's good to present it to people who, who are outside of Christ. But the project at hand is now your sanctification, running that race toward the finish line uh, and wanting to be as close as possible when you stand before your Savior, not because whether or not you're acceptable depend on it, but because you love Him. Um, all right, let's go to question 35. What are the benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from justification, 
adoption, and sanctification? Answer. The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, perseverance in it to the end. That, that's quite a list. Um, the celebrated Philip de Mornay, Huguenot statesman, I'm going to add Huguenot statesman to my business card, and a most exemplary Christian, being asked a little before death if he still retained the same assured hope of future bliss which he had so comfortably enjoyed during his illness, made this memorable reply. I am, said he, as confident of it from the incontestable evidence of the Spirit of God as ever I was of any mathematical truth from all the demonstrations of Euclid. Boom, it's like a geometry. They were like, where's your only hope in life and a death? And he was like, let me talk about geometry a little bit. <laughs> but it, the, the idea that now we think of uh, spiritual truth as being very different from something like mathematical truth, right? This is you know, provable, it's cut and dry, it's absolute. There's right, there's wrong, it's obvious. You can say two plus three equals five, and anyone who says anything else is off track. Whereas spiritual truth is a little more nebulous, there's an ebb and a flow to it. And so if you ask someone, you have peace before their death, they're not going to speak in these Euclidean mathematical terms. They're going to say, well, yeah, I feel this kind of indescribable warmth. Or, and, and, and you're going to go, okay, good. Uh, great, okay, uh, to each his own. That's not the way Scripture approaches truth. Truth is truth, capital T. If it's true, it's true. Whether it's a spiritual truth, whether we're talking about the Trinity, or whether we're talking about the transitive property. So, which is like if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, right? I think. I don't know. It's been a long time. Um, so it's, it's all the same, and, and he's looking at where his hope is, and he is finding it not in himself, but in truth and the incontestable evidence of the Spirit of God. And it has to do with pointing away from himself. And that, I think, is the heart of this question here. What are the benefits which in this life either accompany or flow out from justification, adoption, and sanctification? Jazz, which we've been talking about the last three weeks. J-A-S, just now. Um, my wife's not here, so I haven't been sleeping well. Um, one, benefits in this life. Two, benefits at death. Three, benefits at the resurrection is essentially how we can break this down. Benefits in this life. That's something we often skip over, I think. Right? There's a certain strain of spirituality, especially in the Christian church, where it's all about pointing forward. And there are times and settings in which that makes sense. Uh, if you listen to a lot of like spirituals that slaves would sing, they're not about like my best life now, right? And that's not because they lacked faith. It's because their hope was there's something greater than this life. And we can trust God to, to bring us there. Uh, because humans are wicked and this system is corrupt and so there's a, a greater judge, a greater system, there's something waiting for us. So there are situations in which the benefits in this life are harder to see, but even in those songs, you see them. Uh, and it's to our great peril, uh, spiritually, 
development-wise and especially in evangelism that we downplay the benefits of this life. Just like you don't want to make it all about this life. You don't want to go around saying, yeah, you'll be healthy and wealthy and, and content and satisfied if you follow Jesus. And, you know, you'll probably have a nice new house and you can start that business and live your dreams. That's not the gospel. But you also don't want to make it only about the pie in the sky by and by after you die because this is a holistic faith. It's not just about that either. So there's benefits in life, benefits at death, and benefits at the resurrection. And there is assurance. So this is perhaps the most uh, all-encompassing benefit during this life. The assurance that you're standing before God is a settled matter. That we know people everywhere are religious in all ways. You go anywhere in the world and you will find religion. You will find people trying to reach out to their creator. Even you go to places that have, there are fewer and fewer, maybe only one or two left, but places that are untouched by outside influence. And they've got some religious system. They're all kind of together reaching to the, to the gods or the god uh, that's behind all this. And a lot of it, almost all of it, when you get to the core of it, is rooted in fear and uncertainty and having to pedal faster and do more and get ahead in order to be okay. Because we all, not only do we know that there's a God and we should worship him, we all know that there's something between us and this God. There's something in the way that we've got to deal with. So whether it's blood sacrifices, you know, in Hawaii in ages past, or whether it's animal sacrifices, or whether it's vows, or however we try and make up the difference, that's religion. And a great gift to Christians in this life is pressure's off. You have blessed assurance that you are his, that you will stand before him and be welcome. Now, how do we square that with work out your salvation in fear and trembling? There is a tension there, I think. Um, and I don't know, I, 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 we can't resolve it, but I don't want it to be a contradiction either. So as a, as a believer, I think the fear and trembling is if you're looking at your life and it doesn't look like what Scripture is describing, wretched man that I am and all, right? The, the, the battling against wickedness and the frustration with your sin and the fleeing to Christ well, then maybe it's time to be a little bit worried. But if you, like Paul, are in the midst of this battle, he finds his assurance, right? Wretched man that I am. Very next verse, there's the assurance. Or Peter, falling on his face. By the way, come and see the chosen um, these, these Wednesdays. There's a, it's a wonderful depiction of that encounter. He falls on his face when he all of a sudden realizes who this guy actually is. And away from me. For I'm a sinful man. I don't want to rub off on you. You don't deserve, or I don't deserve to have you near me. And what does Jesus say? You're right. Get out of here. And I kind of push the boat back out to sea with his toe. Like Santa on the Christmas story. No. He's like, get up. Come here. I'm going to make of you a fisher of men. I'm, I will make of you what I want you to be. Don't worry. That you're, yeah, you're a sinful man now. Follow me. I'll make you into what I want you to be. So that assurance being there is the answer to the fear and trembling. Both, it's a, it's a, it's a 
not a balance, it's a tension, and, and it, ought to, it ought to remain a tension. Do all non-Christians lack assurance? That's a question I had never thought of until uh, I came across it in a catechism on the catechism. Often you could go to someone and say, listen, I know that you're tore up about the fact that you don't stand before God redeemed. I can, I can show you how to, you know, believe and repent. And they might say, oh, I'm good. I'm, I know that God will accept me, right? Is, you know, it's a weird question. Why? No, it's just like because, because I think that I think that depending on how you take, how far you take the idea of total depravity and stuff, and, and Jesus has worked about those who are in the dark want to be in the dark. They, you know, they they love the dark and they, they're not going to want the light shining in on it. So you know that to me almost kind of indicates that they are assured in their own way. Mm-hmm. This is the way they want to go. This is the way they want to be. But yeah, at the same time, I, why would they have such a volatile response? someone like Jesus, you know, because, because that would mean that they weren't so sure of their way, mm-hmm. you know, because they do have this anger, this kind of outlashing towards him, and they want to kill him, because that would... Because he suggested that they weren't right in God's right, sight. Because he's, he's threatening them, he's threatening their way, and I don't, I don't think you can be so, like, assured in your own way if something like this could topple, mm. topple you to the point where you're going to murder a man. And then proceed to murder all of its followers and such, just because you feel threatened. Sounds like maybe they protest too much. That no, no I, I have assurance, yeah. and maybe it's a lie they're telling themselves. People react very violently if you start picking at lies they've told themselves, uh, out of necessity or out of uh, a desire to to lay something to rest. Yeah. So I think we, that you have to draw. I wish I did have my whiteboard. Now that after the fact, there's some regret there. There's, you, know, um, you have to draw a distinction between true assurance, which Christians have, and kind of presumptuous competence in the flesh, which I think most of mankind has at one time or another. Even those who would say, yeah, I'm a dirtbag and I don't care. I'm going to hell. All the coolest people are going to hell. There's, there's still... A presumptuous confidence in that, uh, that I'm okay. I'll be all right. Wherever I am, I've got me. Uh, and if I had the whiteboard, man, you tried to help me out. I would draw a line right down the middle and I would make a, a nice, neat chart like the one you guys are going to make. And it would say true assurance on one side and presumption or presumptuous confidence on the other. And I think it would be a very helpful thing for us as we uh, suss out our own standing before God and remind ourselves of where our assurance comes from uh, to, to reflect on these things. So on the true assurance side, I would write, leads to self-denial and humility. So I'm assured that Jesus paid the price. He, he bought me with a price. He laid down his life. He did. He went to the very end, as far as he could go, to save me. This is not going to puff me up. Okay, this assurance is not self-confidence at all. This is going to lead me down lower, down onto my face at the foot of the cross. Humility, spiritual poverty. 
On the other hand, presumptuous confidence will lead to spiritual pride. I'm all right in God's eyes. I know a lot of people who think that because they're like church-going Americans with traditional family values, that they're definitely going to be welcomed into God's presence on the last day. Uh, or those who uh, did more good than bad, an awful lot more good. Let me tell you about all the good. Spiritual pride. So true assurance leads us to deny ourselves and to be humble. Presumptuous confidence leads us to spiritual pride. I would point in the true assurance column to Galatians 2, 19 through 20, which says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A reminder that it's not me, but Christ in me that gives me assurance that, that brings about a change in nature and a change in life that might also reinforce my assurance. It's all Jesus. Under presumptuous confidence, we might think of people like the Pharisees who only look to the outward of them. Look, look at me. Put me at the head table. Look at my robes. Check out my tassels. Phylacteries. Huge. Huge. Uh, I'm... I'm so righteous. That is a false assurance. They were very assured. When Jesus even suggested, who are you, Nazareth carpenter, to suggest that we are not, you know, and then he would say something about the high priest, they'd slap him. But that was all buffed up. That was all false confidence. Those uh, who said we're sons of Abraham and John the Baptist went nuts on them. God could bring up sons of Abraham out of out of these rocks, yeah, he's, that's nothing to him. The fact that you're a son of Abraham is an external thing, and it's a source of pride. It's, it's not true assurance. That was the source of their assurance. Don't tell us we need to repent. We're sons of Abraham. And he's like, that's, that's nothing. I'm the son of Abraham, so I'm in trouble. Right, right. Well, and I mean, so much of the world, too, could say they were sons of Abraham. He was the father of many nations. That's what his name even meant. And today, I think a lot of people will, you know, I'm this kind of first world, buttoned up, you know, civilized, therefore I'm okay. I'm not like these guys out in, in darkest Africa with machine guns stealing kids and making them into soldiers. So, okay, you're now setting your bar here where you can clear it to build up your own confidence. Had you been born over there? you would be doing the same thing because that, that's humility. Uh, the Nicolaitans in the book of Revelation, presumptuous confidence. They're saying, we're saved, therefore do whatever you want, go crazy, have fun, blood covered it. Paul has a lot to say about that. Uh, under true assurance, I would write, leads to a desire to obey every command. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. If we have true assurance of our salvation, Oh, look, look at Levi. Oh, my gosh. Oh, he's so adorable. <laughs> um, all right, look, I guess I got to go quick. We got like three minutes left. Uh, desire to obey every commandment. We're going to respond to that assurance by saying, thank you, God, for holding me close where I can serve you. Uh, as a presumptuous confidence, I would say it leads to sloth and apathy regarding the law. If I've been told by someone, you fill out this card and repeat this prayer, you're saved. Nothing you can do can change that. And my nature hasn't changed. 
I'm, I know a lot of people who've lived lives of great, just grievous sin, and then they point back to some false assurance someone gave them based on something they did. And that is not, that is not true assurance. Uh, Psalm 119, which I'm going to read from in the, the message this morning, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Uh, and then finally, true assurance leads to a desire to be searched and tested. Right? Look at me, God, and find anything that, that is not of you, so we'll burn it away, and I will follow you closer. Psalm 26, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. I want to be made more like him. I want the light to shine in and reveal any darkness still in me. That's true assurance because I don't have to be afraid of the result. When the light shines in, I'm not going to go, uh-oh, what if he sees something he doesn't like and he doesn't love me anymore? No, I have the assurance. So I know he loves me. And so this is a good thing. Presumptuous confidence avoids the light like a cockroach. You click the light on a cockroach, they scurry away, they go into the walls, whatever they do. And that is what presumptuous confidence does. John 3, 19 to 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. So do we, that's John 3, 19 to 21. The question we might ask ourselves when we're saying, am I, am I taking comfort and finding assurance in Christ or am I starting to have a false confidence in my flesh is, is this pushing me to say, God, search me? Or is it putting me into a defensive posture of let's keep the light out of certain areas because I don't know if I could withstand it and I'm a little worried about the end result. Our assurance that Christ justified us, is sanctifying us, and will glorify us, that God has saved us, is saving us, and will save us, gives us nothing but a desire for openness with him, to return to a state of absolute uh, authentic, uh, no, I don't want to say that, I hate that word, absolute uh, vulnerability, opening up who we are and saying, God, please go through the house that is me and find an 11 and Let's take it out. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Heavenly Father, as we continue to look at the benefits that you've given us, uh, the, those that accompany and, and come flowing out of justification and adoption and sanctification, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see where we could be enjoying benefits we are not. That, Lord, we could, we could enjoy this life and have assurance of the life to come well beyond what we already have, Lord, that, that you would give us more and more a ground for our faith and for our hope and for the love that we have for you. Uh, and we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.